combinations in Luke. This is one of them. We'll talk about that more uh, in another lesson. But one through ten. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So Jesus is in Capernaum. And there's a centurion slave, and what's his situation? He's sick. How sick is he? He's about to die. Yeah, the death watch has begun. You know, he's in hospice care, we'd say. You know, uh, he's, he's in a bad way. And um, so, there's some Jewish elders who came to Jesus on behalf of this centurion and his slave, kind of interceding for him with Jesus, asking Jesus to come and heal him. Now, that's pretty unusual, don't you think? Jewish elders are coming to Jesus, begging for him to help a Gentile army officer's slave. So that immediately draws attention to itself. Like, wow, that's that's not what you'd expect all the way around to happen. So go back to this, you know, centurion. What good qualities do you see in him? He cared for his slave. Absolutely. Would you expect that from an army officer? I don't think so. I mean, really. To care about the guy underneath you shows real character. Typically, that's not done. You care about your superiors because you need them. You know, maybe you kind of care about your colleagues as long as you're not competing with the same thing. But the guys underneath you step on. So he's really in, unusual in that he really does care about this centurion, this, this slave of his. You know, he's sick and about to die. What else do you see good about this centurion? Yeah, he'd been generous by doing what? Building the synagogue. Yeah, evidently at its own expense. And, uh, I mean, I think that's why these Jews, you know, not only present his request, but basically lobby Jesus on his behalf. They're really trying to sell the case to Jesus. Look, this guy has been really good to our nation. You know, he built this synagogue for us and all this. It's just unusual to imagine Jewish elders trying to get a favor for a centurion. So I that wow, that's interesting. What else do you see good in this centurion? 
was humble. Yeah. Why do you say he was humble? Well, he he says in this message, the second message, I'm not worthy for you to come. I don't consider myself somebody that you should should regard. Yes. I, mean, I, I am asking, but, you know, I'm not... I, I'm just not really wor- worthy for you to come to my house. He feels, you know, like uh, he's not worthy to have Jesus at home. And I think that's interesting in view of what the Jewish elders said about him. They said that he is worthy. You know, uh, that's exactly what they say in verse 4. They say he is worthy. He says he says he's not. Isn't that a good way to have that? You know, he's humble. He realizes he's not worthy. Everybody else thinks he is. You know, even his enemies, natural enemies anyway. So so that that's interesting, his humility. Um, what What's the other thing that's so impressive about this centurion? Probably the thing that impressed Jesus the most. Yeah. What what shows his faith? He he believes that Jesus could just say be healed from a distance and it would happen. He didn't even have to be there. You know, this the, the centurion is reflecting on his own authority. He can issue a command wherever he is, and it gets passed down the chain of command. He doesn't have to be there, people obey him. And it's like, well, if his own authority produces that result, how much more that of Jesus? Somebody with the authority of Jesus only needs to say the word. You don't have to come here in person. And, I mean, that's pretty incredible for this time period, for somebody to really see Jesus having that much power, that even at a distance he can just, you know, cure the sickness. So, Jesus marveled at this Gentile man's faith. You know, he said, I haven't found faith like this in Israel. I mean, he's surpassing the Jews. You can do what you want to with this, but this story reminds you a little bit of a of an Old Testament story with a Gentile army captain who's connected with a Jewish person that uh, helps them find the healing and being healed at a distance without actually seeing the healer. Who does who is that? Naaman. Naaman. And while we're at it, the story of the raising of the widow's son, the next one, when he gives her him back to his mother, does that remind you of another story in the Bible where someone heals a, uh, a widow's son and gives him back to his mother? Yes. Who did the healing? Elijah. Who healed Naaman? Elisha. Yeah. Elisha also healed the Shunammite woman who raised her son from the dead. She wasn't a widow. But we think Shunam was very close to Nain here. So that's interesting. Look at the statement in verse uh, 16 where they say, A prophet has arisen, a great prophet has arisen among us. That would make you think about Elijah and Elisha. And remember, we've already had in chapter 4 Jesus saying, Weren't there a lot of widows in Israel, but Elijah was sent to the one in Zarephath, and weren't there a lot of lepers in Israel, but Elijah healed Naaman, the army captain of the Syrians. So, I think there's some themes of Jesus being kind of the fulfillment of Elijah and Elisha. I absolutely think Jesus is a great parallel to Elisha. 
I think Elisha should be considered. We had to give a dozen of the top people in the Old Testament that were foreshadowings of Jesus. I think Elisha definitely has to be in that. Maybe in the top five or six. Maybe not, but definitely in the top dozen. All right. Uh, thoughts and comments through verse 10. Um, when you were talking about, you know, some of his, the centurion's characteristics, I, I was going to also, like, say he's perceptive because he, he saw the, the authority. I don't know how to say that more, whether than he's kind of smart about figuring things out. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. That, that's linked to his faith. I mean, some people would have heard and seen things, but would have never really come to trust Jesus in their own situation. But you're right, he is. I mean, who else has come up with this in Israel? All right, 11 to 17. Now it happened the day after that he went to the city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Okay. Um, well, interesting story. Lots of interesting things in this one, I think. In the previous story, Jesus healed somebody near death. Here he raises somebody who is dead. Um, and uh, there's, there's a lot of focus on the, uh, the, the woman, his mother. What makes it bad for her beyond just the normal that she lost her son? Her only son. Only son, and she's a widow. So, like, you know, how's she going to take care of herself? I mean, he's there. He's her support network. Um, so she's kind of an orphan parent. Uh, you know, what you think about only children in uh, Luke. John the Baptist was apparently an only child. Yes, but the text doesn't specifically say that. You know places where the text specifically says somebody's an only child? Jesus? No. no. Mm -hmm. Look at 842. Jairus' daughter. Uh-huh. And look at 938. this uh, demon-possessed boy's son. He was his only boy. So here's three chapters in a row where somebody uh, has an only child that is in trouble in one way or the other. Um, they, I, it, from the Old Testament, it looks like mourning for an only son 
is almost proverbial. In Jeremiah 6.26, you have that idea. Um, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes, mourn as for an only son. A lamentation most bitter, etc. Or you've got uh, Amos 8.10. See here. Um, then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head and I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be a bitter day. And then you've got the passage I'm more familiar with in Zechariah chapter 12. And uh, verse 10, he talks about how they would weep bitterly and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. So the mourning for an only son is kind of like just, that's kind of like your old, your worst possible mourning. And so she is grieving something very, very painful. How did Jesus feel? Compassion. Yes. Which is a strong word for sympathy. You know, some of us don't like to even get close to somebody who's grieving or is hurt. But Jesus reached out to them. Jesus Jesus cared. In fact, it doesn't look to me like, in this particular case, that anybody sought the healing. Jesus kind of took initiative to give it. Most of the time, he heals the people who come to him and request it. There's no indication that I can see that anybody uh, had faith in this account. You know, like the widow or her deceased son or, you know, whatever. Uh, I think Jesus does this just on his own initiative here, which is, you know, interesting. I mean, think about what Jesus said to her. What did he say in verse 13? Don't cry. Don't you suppose everybody was saying that? Don't, isn't that what they always say? I'm not sure that's even a good idea to say that. But isn't that what they say? <coughs> you know, I mean, in a lot of situations, that's what people say. Don't cry. Well, you know, sometimes that almost sounds cruel. If you have a widow who lost your only son and you go up to her and say, don't cry. You know, so like, get over it. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, wow. I mean, that's easy to say don't cry when it's not your only son that just died. But the thing about Jesus that's amazing is he says it and then he removes the cause of the tears. You know, with other people, it may be well-meant, but it's pretty hollow. With Jesus, he's got the power to turn the weeping into joy. There's quite a few passages in the Old Testament that talk about that. You know, Psalm 30, several passages in Isaiah, and so forth. God's the God who brings joy out of weeping. So Jesus, when he says, don't cry, he can he can make that happen. And uh, then, you know, it's interesting. When Jesus came then to the casket... So here you've got an unstoppable force meeting a seemingly immovable object. You know what happens when Jesus encounters a dead body? Well, Jesus won. He brings him back to life. You know, and then it says, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Well, I bet that's one of the best gifts he ever gave, you know, in this life anyway. Isn't it interesting that such an intriguing, powerful story, you know, how many of the Gospels tell this story? How many besides Luke? Just this one, right? Just Luke. <laughs> wow! 
None of the other Gospels even record this. Makes you wonder, wonder what all things Jesus did that not a single one of the Gospels recorded. I mean, that's John's statement, of course, that the world couldn't contain all the books that should be written. Um, and everybody's amazed. You can see that. Wow. A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And the report goes out over all, all over Judea, which, again, Judea often means, in Luke and Acts, the whole, this whole region. Kind of all Palestine. All right, thoughts and comments. Through seventeen. <coughs> okay. Uh, well, eighteen to twenty-three. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, um, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, "Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another?" And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist is sent to us, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Okay. Um... This is interesting. Where's John? Prison. What's he do? He sends, gets one of some of his disciples to go ask Jesus a question. Two of them. What's the question? Ask if he's the Messiah. I think. Are you the one or not? Why this? That that just kind of makes you scratch your head. I mean, because, like, I thought John knew that. I mean, he saw the dove descending on him. I mean, I thought that really kind of gave it away, you know, especially from what he says in John 1. So, why would he send these two disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? Now, there's all kinds of uh, answers people give to that question. We may be fairly divided on that even here. Uh, what do you think? Do you have a good reason what, what, what possessed John to send them? Well, he had been in jail for a while. And he might have thought that things were going to go differently, even for him. And so he's beginning to have have some doubts, or at least to question and and say... Really see that down in the <laughs> uh, This is not the way I expected it to go. Kind of a thing. That is probably the most popular answer, and that may be the case. Survey says. Yeah, the, the, on the Family Feud, that's the seventy-five uh, percent answer. Uh, yeah. It's not my answer, but I do think it's a possibility. Uh, you could certainly see. You know, if you're expecting Jesus to kind of um, come and liberate things and you're still in prison that doesn't seem too good anybody got a different answer his faith is different because he's in prison this isn't where he expected to be so he maybe thought Jesus maybe he was wrong yeah so it's kind of the same answer yeah that's that's a possibility could John like be doubting himself like he Picked the wrong person or something like that? Or? Mm, well, that'd be interesting. But he did see the Spirit come down. 
like they thinking there's something totally different. Like maybe John thought the two disciples needed to see Jesus. Now that's a perspective like that. some people have too. That that he did this for their sake. I don't agree with that one either, but that is a possibility. You can see that. Mine is more simplistic and it's probably wrong, but I'll be the last to admit it. Um, I think that it may be that John in prison can't see Jesus, he can't hear Jesus, he's hearing some reports about Jesus, and he's not sure he's the same guy. And so he's, you know, by being in prison, he can't go and verify who he is. And so that he's asking to find out, is he the one that he baptized that was the Messiah, or is he somebody else? You don't like that one, but I think it's worth, I, I prefer it, but I'm not ruling out the other two. The clearer thing is how Jesus answers. You know, what would you say, you know, if they ask you if you were the Messiah, I hope you'd say no. But, you know, <laughs> if they ask you, you know, are you, you know, I don't know, are you an employee of whatever firm you're an employee of, you would probably say yes. You know, are you a computer programmer? Then he would probably say Yes. But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't say, oh yeah, it's me. What does he say? What does he do? He does and not says. He gives his exactly. Yeah, he does various things like he heals and, you know, casts out demons. And then he says, go tell John what you saw. You know, go tell him that you saw the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers cleanse, the deaf hear, the dead raised up before having gospel preached in. Now, what is the advantage of Jesus doing it that way? <laughs> Well, I mean, if if he had said, yes, I'm the Messiah, and if he had even said, I've healed these people here, and these, you know, those guys used to be lame, and that group used to be blind, all the two disciples can say is, yeah, he said he was the one, as opposed to becoming an eyewitness and being able to vouch for Jesus that, yeah, this blind guy came up. And Jesus did this that thing with the mud again, and wow. Yeah. It's almost, it's always more convincing to give factual evidence than to just say, yes, it's me. You know, almost letting John draw his own conclusions. Okay, here's what I'm doing. And really, this is, uh, if you look at it carefully, a symphony of passages from Isaiah. There's all sorts of passages from Isaiah being alluded to where the Messiah was going to do those very things. And so if that's what the prophet said the Messiah was doing, and they report, this is what we saw Jesus doing, John can figure it out from there. But he also says, uh, at the end of verse, or in verse 23, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So, you know... There are some barriers that exist, and not everybody's going to believe in Jesus. Blessed is the one who doesn't take offense at Jesus. Okay, thoughts and comments about the sending of the messengers. What does it mean to not take offense? What does that? Well, I mean, maybe not uh, not recognize him, be turned off by him instead of turned to him. Why would he say that to John? Yeah, is that addressed to John? Well, the people who think that 
the first explanation is true, that he was really disillusioned, he expected more from the Messiah, then yes, that would be saying, you know, and blessed are you if you're, you know, not, uh, you not offended the by the way I am. But it may be a recognition that, you know, Jesus does a lot of great things, but there are a lot of people who also oppose him. And, you know, we need to see the evidence and come to the right conclusion. I don't know. Well, 24 to 28. When the messengers of John left, began to speak to the multitude about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So Jesus has some reflection, reflections about John. And by asking, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. Well, suppose there probably were some out there in the wilderness, don't you imagine? Is that why they went out of the wilderness? You know, just to see the Jordan River's vegetation? You know, it wasn't just the scenery that drew them. And it wasn't a guy who acted like a reed swayed by the wind. You know, a guy with no convictions who just says whatever people want to hear and tries to make them happy. Spineless and uncertain. Was that John? Whoa. <laughs> that was not John. You know, he was a firm man who never compromised his convictions. If you want to read Shaken by the Wind, I believe John's not the guy. Did you go out to see maybe uh, some dapper fellow who's dressed in splendid clothing and lives in luxury in royal palaces? Was that John? Wow. <laughs> wow. That's just like, man. Uh, you, you, you suppose John may have never had a decent set of clothes in his life. I don't know. Um, you know... He was a rugged, stern way of life, lived simply, you know. So people did not go out to see John because, you know, he told them what they wanted to hear or because he lived the lifestyle of the rich and famous, you know. So that's not why they went out. Um, he says John is a prophet. He's more than a prophet. He was prophesied about. He wasn't just a prophet. He was the one who prepared the way for the coming of the Lord. That's amazing. I mean, wow. So he's a prophet with several asterisks. You know, he's the prophet forerunner of the Messiah. But then what does verse 28 mean? Isn't that kind of weird? I mean, he's the best the human race has to offer. Among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. But if you're least in the kingdom of heaven, uh, uh, then, then you're greater than John. Is that because the kingdom is so great? Exactly. 
Think about this. What was John's role toward the kingdom? He was preparing, preparing, proclaiming, announcing the kingdom. It is better to participate in the kingdom than to announce it. What was our role in the wedding? In the wedding that we have with the Lord. We are the... And John was... He's like the best man. The best man. It is better to be the bride than the best man. Right? You know... Now, Jesus isn't minimizing John's importance, but he's saying being in the kingdom is the best thing you can have. It puts in the shade even the, the best man that's ever lived. You know... The bottom ten in the kingdom are greater than number one from the old era, which was John. Uh, so, I mean, wow. Jesus coming and the coming of his kingdom pretty much rewrites history. Wow, this is like the watershed event from here on out. It's wonderful. Dividing line in history. Thoughts and comments through 28. Being born of the Spirit is better than being born of woman. Yes, it is. Good point. Yes. And he, I think, makes it clear that he's grouping all of the prophets. You know, was John a prophet? Oh, yeah. In fact, he was more than a prophet. He was more than any of those old prophets. He was even greater than that. So I think... Yeah. I mean, it looks to me like he's saying, up till this time, John was the greatest man ever. And yet, the least of the kingdom of heaven is greater than the greatest man before Jesus died. That would have possibly caused some people to stumble over him. <laughs> <laughs> Good boy. Because of the way they upheld, you know, Moses and the prophets. It seems sort of outrageous. Yeah. Good point. Other thoughts? Well, notice 29 and 30. Possibly still the words of Jesus. I think better, perhaps, the words of Luke. But when all the people and tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So, I mean, the the common people, I mean, they like put their verdict of approval on, on what, what God was doing through Jesus. They were baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, they reject God's purpose for themselves. Here they are, the guys that are most concerned with properly interpreting the law. And they're the ones who still miss God's will. You know, they resist it. They reject it. There's no irresistible grace here. You can resist. And they did, unfortunately. And really, the litmus test was receiving the baptism of John. Now, that's not the baptism of Jesus yet. But even John's baptism is kind of the dividing line. All right, so comments and questions through verse 30. What is, what is God's justice? Well, I think the idea is, you know, God's being righteous or just. You know, maybe even God's plan to make man just. But, but the idea is they showed their approval and their support uh, for God's... Uh, being just and righteous in what he commands. 
Alright. Well, why don't we stop there for tonight then? We can uh, pick up in 31. And I didn't exhaust my notes tonight, so that's good.